0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. This week, I'm going to be looking at this mega project that has been announced in Saudi Arabia. And it's called The Line. And the announcement came from Neom, which is this smart city that is proposing to kind of build this. And it has been called uh, Revolution... In civilization, and there's some very slick videos. I'll put a link in the show notes below if you want to check them out. But what it is being built as a totally sustainable city. It's going to have 100% renewable energy. It's going to have at uh, nine million inhabitants. There's going to be no cars, and so there'll be no carbon emissions. So it certainly sounds like the perfect city if you think about it like that. Um, it's definitely the direction we need to be going if you take into account climate change and all of the evidence, the latest evidence, which is, you know, the heat waves that we're all experiencing, um, the flooding that some parts of the world are experiencing. So what's really strange is there's these huge droughts in, in, uh, in America at the moment. They're going through this massive drought. And Lake Mead, which is where the Hoover Dam is, Lake Mead is almost down to a puddle now at this stage. And Lake Mead and um, the Hoover Dam is 800 feet high okay so 80 stories high and the water used to go to the top of the dam and now it is currently almost completely drained out so 800 feet of water has gone across this entire reservoir lake and that feeds that that lake feeds 40 million people across los angeles and all these different places with water so you've got droughts there but then in other parts of the world like germany last year you had those huge floods that ripped away cities and towns and stuff you've got in sydney australia in the last couple of months there have been massive floods and there was i think i heard a figure 14 meters of water um in sydney and so you know devastation there and at the same time we've got Fires raging across Spain, forest fires raging across France and uh, and then now the latest thing is that there are glaciers melting in the Alps that are meaning they're having to close down some of the tourist trails that people go to kind of cycle and walk during the summer So definitely climate change is starting to speed up it seems certainly to my in my perspective and I do think that it's important that we start to address how we are living and how we are kind of contributing to the emissions that are causing all of this. And it's not gonna be fixed overnight. Um, so the big question is like, can a city like this with all of this sustainability and stuff, is it realistic? Can it be built from scratch? Can that many residents actually be you know, put in a city? And is it financially and culturally viable? And the best bit about this, by the way, is that this proposed city is 500 meters tall. That is taller than the Empire State Building. And it stretches for 170 kilometers. And it's just a wall. That's why they're calling it the line. Anyway, so I'm going to be jumping into that. I'm going to be asking, is this indeed the future of civilization? Or is it just another vanity project that we see so often coming from these oil-rich nations in the Middle East, where the, uh, they just want to kind of have the superlatives like the biggest or the greatest or the longest or the deepest or whatever. So look, let's get into the show. You are listening to Behind the Facade and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. All right, guys, welcome back. Before we get into the main topic, I just want to Give a quick shout out to the uh, the country moldova where i've just come from i've spent the last week there and it's very very hot there about 35 degrees and lovely and sunny and um uh, you know i don't i don't do well in there in the heat but uh, it was very nice to be over there i was there with my wife and our kids and i gotta tell you just the cost of living there is so cheap when you're when you're coming from as i am coming from ireland Uh, arriving into Moldova and just like it's shocking how cheap it is and uh, you really really notice it and just to give you an example before we get into the main topic just want to give you an example so I christened my son Dominic on Friday just a few days ago and afterwards we took the relatives out for kind of a bit of a, a party a bit of a dinner and the way they do it over there traditionally is you have a big long table and we had 10 people And all sitting around the table, and then there's just tons of food brought out, like plates of food brought out. So you'll have salads, you'll have different types of meats, you'll have different types of breads. There was also pizzas being brought out. And then there was champagne, there was a bottle of cognac on the table, there was beers, there was soft drinks, anything that you wanted, lots of water obviously. And the total came... Now, I had to pay for all of this because it was my son's christening. But the total came to... I'm going to give you the Moldovan Lay price first, which is going to sound pretty high. The total came to 2,519 Moldovan Lay. But I'm actually looking at my Revolut uh, phone now and I can actually see my Revolut app on the phone. I can actually see the euro cost of that meal was 128 euro and nine cent. And so the total cost of that meal per head came to less than 13 euro per person. That's food and alcohol. So it's, look, if you guys are considering taking a city break of some sort, then, you know, do consider going to Moldova. If you want to get the, get the maximum for your money, it's certainly, it's certainly worth checking out. Now it is, I got to warn you, it is a post-Soviet city, okay? And so there's lots of poverty there you see um, these big tower blocks that were built in the Soviet times, and they're kind of like 20 stories high. They're all like falling down. Well, not falling down, but they're crumbling and they're kind of really in a bad condition. And lots of and and everyone just lives in those conditions. And uh, but it is actually a beautiful place and a beautiful city, and plenty to see there. And we went and visited this water park called Vara Vara, and it, I think it's the biggest. Um, it's the biggest wave pool in europe as far as it was it, as far as i read um i also when I was there and i i won't i won't talk for much longer on this, but I just wanted to kind of mention that i i took a i rented a car and we drove about two hundred kilometers north to a rural part of Moldova where some of my wife's family live and um it was really really eye opening for me and it's a kind of really um, really hits you when you see how people are living in different parts of the world and the stuff that we take for granted. Um, I go to the bathroom, flush the loo, wash my hands in the sink with a tap and water flowing. In Moldova, in this rural part of Moldova we were in, they had a well, and that was the only source of water that they had, and they had to go and send a bucket down, pull the bucket up, and that's your water that you use to... Wash your hair, brush your teeth, do whatever you need to do. And um, and I was just there kind of saying, my God, you know, the stuff that we take for granted. Anyway, it was a real eye-opener. It was great for the kids to actually see this and, and understand like that. The stuff that they take for granted every single day is not how it is around the world. And so it was a real eye-opener for both myself and for the kids. And it did make me think... You know how grateful and how lucky we are living in the kind of modern world that we can take this kind of stuff for granted. Anyway, on to the main topic today. The reason I want to cover this topic is because while I was away, um, I actually came across this news article and I was talking about this new megacity project called The Line. And The Line, uh, what really caught my attention was just the statistics they're gonna blow your mind when I get into them. Now, but before I do, before I start kind of getting into the juicy details, let me just outline how I'm gonna break up this story because I, I don't wanna just ramble. I wanna actually structure it. So there's gonna be four sort of parts to this. Part one, I'm gonna to talk to about what is NEOM, and that is the, the smart city that made the announcement about this thing called the line. Number two, I'm gonna be briefly going over so the drawbacks of the traditional city and how this new proposal, the line, promises to address and solve all of those issues. Part three is gonna be the juicy details, the technical stuff, and I'm gonna get into the what, the why, the how, and the how much um, of some of the kind of technical stuff that they've proposed. And then part four is just gonna be my own opinion on the pros and cons of this proposal, this concept and whether I think it can work financially, whether it can work technically, and then more importantly probably uh, than anything is, in terms of the human side, the human nature, the behavioral aspects of it, and culturally, is it possible to create something like this and for it to actually work? And that's what we're gonna dive into today. So let's start with part one. What is Neom? So Neom is this smart city that is being built in Saudi Arabia at the moment. It's being built in a province called the Tabuk Re- uh, province. And that is over on the west coast of the um, of Saudi Arabia. And it is on the, the Red Sea up near the Gulf of Suez. Now, it is being planned as a, a kind of a city, but also a tourist destination and a logistics and industrial hub. It'll have education. It'll have financial, media, all this. And... If that sounds a lot like another city known as Dubai, then you've got it in one. It does seem to me like they are certainly trying to give Dubai a run for its money. Niam is also the name of the company that is developing it. And so the company has been set up to basically finance all of this construction because it is going to cost billions to do this. Incidentally, the name neom I just looked it up there, and it comes from the word neo, which is the Greek word for new. And then what they did is they put the letter m. And what that is is that's an abbreviation of a word. And I'm going to apologies in advance for my pronunciation, but this is an Arabic word, and it is mustasbal. Mustasbal. I don't know whether I got that right or not, but it is the Arabic word for future. So ne neo is new, M is future, Neom, new future. So it's certainly a nice ring to it, and it is interesting. Now, one of these kind of silly things that they do that I see in the Middle East a lot is that it wasn't enough just to leave it with that explanation. They also had to mention that the M also stands for the first name of the Crown Prince, His Royal Highness Muhammad, who is the chairman of the company. And why they have to do that, I don't know. But it it is kind of the way it is culturally over there. You know, the importance of the ruler and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Neom is going to comprise three different regions. There is the line, which I'm going to get into shortly, but there's also the oxygon. And that is basically a floating port uh, and a logistics and industrial city. And when I say floating, it's actually a floating city. Um, and there's going to be boats coming in, and it's going to be dock, They're going to be docking there. So it's kind of it's quite interesting. I'm going to put links in the show notes if you're interested in checking this stuff out. And then finally, there's another region called Trojena, and that is actually, believe it or not, even though it's Saudi Arabia, it is going to be a ski resort in the mountains in Saudi Arabia with real snow um, because of the altitude, I think. And it'll also have its own airport and all that kind of stuff. The the final thing I'm just going to go into is who is in control of NEON? And as is so often the case in the Middle East uh, and with companies, especially state-run companies like this, you have an awful lot of highly qualified, very, very highly compensated expats, experts that come in from Europe and America and various places. But always, without fail, you're going to have a local member of the royal family in charge, like he'll be the chairman or whatever it will be, and he is ultimately in control. And in this case, that happens to be His Royal his royal Highness, Highness the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salam is the chairman of the company. Now, if that name sounds familiar, that's probably because this is the very same Mohammed bin Salem who has been accused by the CIA of ordering the assassination of the uh, Saudi dissident journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you might remember a couple of years ago, the story It's very, very, it's pretty horrific. But he was lured, it was his wedding day, and he had to go to get a license, I think, from the embassy. So he was lured to the embassy in Istanbul, in Turkey, where he was living or where he was visiting. And when he went in to get this license for his wedding, he was executed and dismembered Um, and the the Turkish authorities came out and actually announced this because they had sound audio recording of what was what was done basically after the assassination and uh, pretty horrific stuff anyway look I I won't dwell on that it's it's pretty tragic but that is the same person who is the chairman of this company leaving that aside let's get into part two and part two I'm going to be talking about the drawbacks of the traditional city and how the line proposes to address and solve these issues. Now, the biggest issue, and I think all of us will probably experience this on a regular enough basis uh, if we live in a city, is that urban sprawl. And urban sprawl is this where the city extends for miles and miles and miles in every direction. And, um, And so basically, you need a car. You can't travel effectively on foot. And you could you might be able to go on, on a bicycle or something like that, but a lot of the time it's so far the distances are so great that you can't really realistically travel on a bicycle and so um public transport also in when when you're talking about urban sprawl when it goes basically i 'm talking about look at dublin the the city of Dublin or look at the city of london um these cities extend like tens of miles in every direction and if you want to get out of the city it's often a long drive to kind of get outside of the city limits and so uh certainly in london when i was there god it took forever to get out of the city of london and um, the problem with that is that it means that public transport is not as effective as it could be because it's so spread out what you need for effective public transport is densely packed cities and so that's why new york city the manhattan part of new york city anyway that works effectively as a city because it can all be built up and then you've just got huge numbers of people traveling on the uh the subway and so those transport hubs they can shift very very large numbers of people and uh, the, the new the london tube is similar um and i lived in london so i know it can it can transport a lot of people but it can be pretty horrific traveling in the summer in, in the tube. Um, the line also addresses um, that when you're building these very densely um, packed buildings, the neighborhoods, it means that you can walk um, quite easily around. If, any, if you've ever been to New York City, you know that you can live in a tower, you can also work in that same tower because the offices might be on the lower floors. And then you can go down to the ground floor And there might be grocery stores and all sorts of stuff. That is the kind of 3D stacked city. And it's also quite successful in Singapore. And um, these work really, really well. It means that you can just take an elevator down and you don't have to jump in your car to travel and get groceries and all this kind of stuff. You just go up and down a couple of floors. This means that the reliance on the car is not there. So if you're living in the city of New York, you you don't buy a car. Like, why would you have a car? You just jump in a cab or you get the subway. People in New York, unless you're very wealthy and you can afford it, you just don't ever buy a car. And if you do buy a car, it costs an arm and a leg to keep that car. I can remember when I was in New York, the cost per hour for parking was something like $20. And so you can imagine the cost of just owning a car and having to find a parking space somewhere. So no cars then you're going to have no carbon emissions. And that is what the line is proposing. It's proposing that there will be no cars. Everything will be walking distance within five minutes of where you're living. And so that in itself is a fantastic idea if it can work. Uh, Traditional cities also have evolved over hundreds of years and their infrastructure, you've got drains, sewers, all of that kind of stuff. You've got power lines, all of this Very, very hard to retrospectively change that. But if you're starting from new, you can obviously start with all of these renewables. So what NEOM is proposing is that it'll be 100% renewable energy. Now, that is funny coming from Saudi, which is the biggest producer of oil in the world. But let's take them at their word. Um, They're saying that they'll have solar power, which is 100% of the year they've basically got solar. They'll have wind power as well. They'll also have green hydrogen. And uh, this all sounds great. And so it's certainly easier to do it in a new build than it would be to retrospectively try to install all of this. Um, One of the big drawbacks of city living, obviously, is access to nature. And um, one of the great things about New York City is that you've got Central Park, which is just this fantastic, they call it like a lung in the city and you can go there central park by the way is 800 acres so give you an idea of just how large it is and a lot of people go in there and they bike and all that kind of stuff so that's nice um but beyond that you know you're jumping on a car and you're driving for hours to get outside of the into like rural part of the countryside and so what they're proposing with this line is that it's going to be a very very narrow City. It's only going to be 200 meters wide, but it's going to be 170 kilometers long and it's going to be 500 meters tall. And so that means that it is effectively a wall. (laughs) You're living in a wall. And because it's so narrow, it means that it's not impacting the countryside on either side or the, the natural environment on either side. So you walk out from the wall and you're in the natural environment. On, on either one side or the other. Now, these, these are all great concepts, by the way, and they were first devised by a an architect, a French architect called Le, Corpus, Le Corbusier. Now, I learned all about this when I was studying architecture years ago, and he had the idea to build these towers, and I think the idea was in Paris or something like that, but the idea was that instead of having these squalid conditions that so many people in, you know, Paris at the time were living, that you would build these tower blocks and that you would space them far apart and there would be just lots of beautiful parkland in between. And it's a great idea, but the problem is, it's it's whether or not it can actually work in practical terms. Now, many of these concepts were actually tried by cities, including my own city here, Dublin, and the infamous Ballymun Flats were actually based on that concept. And so they built these 14-storey towers. They took people from these kind of um, tenement buildings in the city centre, moved them out towards the countryside, built these tower blocks, and then they were supposed to have like parkland in between. The problem is the funding ran out, and so they built the towers, but they didn't build the park. So when you walked out, instead of having parkland, you basically had wasteland. And then over the years... The buildings weren't properly maintained, and so the elevators failed. And so after a while, you had people living on the 14th floor, not having an elevator. And so the only way down was the staircase, 14 floors up and down. Imagine getting your shopping and stuff like that. So it did not work. And because the you know, the par- parkland didn't get built and it was just a wasteland outside, there was an awful lot of crime. There was no a- employment in that area. And so high unemployment, high crime, high drugs rate and all of that kind of stuff. And that was what you've seen in a lot of cities that did this. So the concept was nice, but in practice it did not work. Now part three, I'm going to get into some of the technical details. Now I I already mentioned that this thing is 500 meters tall, which is taller than the Empire State Building. 170 kilometers long, that's just shy of 100 miles in one direction. And then two, only 200 meters wide, so 200 meters is what the, the the length of a football field or something like that. So it's pretty narrow. And what instantly caught my attention were the images, and I'll put them up on the screen here if you're watching the YouTube video. But this is a huge mirror glass wall that extends for miles into the horizon. And um, if you're just if you just think about that for a minute, imagine coming across this imagine you're on a on a camel crossing the desert and you come across this wall that is 500 meters high and just stretches into the distance like when you're looking in the distance you can only see six miles into the horizon so 170 miles is going to disappear beyond the horizon and the funny thing is the instant i saw it the first thing that came to mind was the uh it was a modern version of the wall in the Game of Thrones. Anyone who was watching the Game of Thrones, you had this ice wall that protected the south from the, the north. And uh, it was something similar in terms of height and stuff like that. But it was built of ice. And in this particular case, obviously this is mirror glass, concrete and steel. And uh, those dimensions are just mind-blowing. But I, t- I try to imagine what it would be like and. It, it the, the best way I can describe it, um, apart from the wall description from the great, from the Game of Thrones, just to give you an idea of these, these kind of they call this, they're calling this a new wonder for the world, and um, they, I, I see this a lot in the Middle East. They like to look for the big superlatives. They like the biggest or the tallest or the longest or whatever it is, and when I first travelled to Dubai after the Burj Khalifa was built I hadn't been there for a couple of years and so I'd heard about the Burj Khalifa but I had no idea um, what it looked like and as I was flying into Dubai it was an overnight flight and I was arriving just as dawn was kind of rising so the whole I looked out the airplane window and it was just this blanket of clouds and yet the funny thing was as soon as uh, I saw it I could not forget it it was this white cloud everywhere and this little black needle sticking up above the clouds and like quite a distance above the clouds and it was just amazing seeing that and kind of thinking to myself wow that is the Burj Khalifa I mean it was without a doubt because there's nothing close to it in terms of height in Dubai I mean the next tallest building is like 300 meters shorter than it or whatever and so it's pretty impressive 300 meters, by the way, is the height of the Eiffel Tower. So the idea that this city is going to contain 9 million people, that really stood out for me because I've lived in London um, for a couple of years and London has a population, I think, of 11 million. So that is a huge, huge city. And to think that this place is going to, they're proposing 9 million people living in a 500 meter tall wall that basically stretches to the horizon 100 miles. It is very, very interesting. Now, what they're proposing to do here in terms of construction, they're going to build it in blocks of uh, sections, we'll say. And each section will be 800 meters long, 200 meters wide, and 500 meters tall. And what they're proposing is to build 212 of these sections. And that's the full 170 kilometers. Now, obviously, it'll take a number of years to do that. But the idea is that each section is self-contained. And you go and move in there. And you basically, um, you have everything you need to to live in that place. And so you've got all your education needs, your shopping needs, your cultural needs, sports needs, whatever it might be, um, exercise needs. This is what they're proposing anyway. I'm not so sure. You have to have a think about that. But um, by making it just 200 meters wide, the impact on the surroundings is minimized. And that is a good thing, I guess. Um, But I am curious about the shadow that is going to be cast by a 500 meter tall wall stretching 170 kilometers. That's going to be interesting. The whole concept, though, of this super densely packed, um, stacked kind of city in a community that's walkable. I actually quite like that concept because what they're, they're billing it as is the five minute walkable city. And so that means that you walk out the door of your apartment and everything you need is within five minutes of that door of your apartment. And so because of that, no need for cars, and because no need a car for cars, there will be zero carbon emissions. At least that' what they're that's what they're saying. They're also proposing that they're going to use natural climate um, temperature control. And so, what they mean by that, they're going to have basically year-round temperate microclimate. And this is going to be done by natural ventilation. Now, this might sound unrealistic to a lot of people who are from, say, the uh, the cooler parts of Europe and the world. But it's actually it does work and I've I've studied this before when I was working in the Middle East and the way the old cities were built they they put them very very narrow streets and that were per, per, perpetually in the shade. And the reason for that was that you didn't get the the heat from the sun heating up the ground and when the when the ground gets hot it it holds the heat and so you feel extra warm. So what happens is you get these convection currents and the air up at the top and the bottom it kind of circulates so you have the cool air and the warm air exchanging for one another and that is how the thing naturally ventilates itself. So it is interesting. It it basically it's called the chimney effect and it it does mean that there is no need for air conditioning and stuff. Now it'll be interesting to see does it you know do they actually follow through with that because I'm not so sure that anyone is going to move into an apartment without air conditioning living in the Middle East, but we shall see. 500 metres tall, that is the height of this thing, and that means that it is approximately 125 storeys. Now, they're describing it as a three-dimensional community, and I've already mentioned, you know, you can basically just take an elevator up and down and you're only a few minutes away. One of the things that they're talking about here is that you will have a rapid transit so I think what they're talking about is some sort of a train or electric train or whatever it is but it will be high speed and that's for sure because they're saying that to go to go from one end of the city to the other the 170 kilometers will only take 20 minutes now that's 500 kilometers per hour so that's a pretty fast train whatever it is that they are proposing Um, the only thing you got to think about and this is the one thing that I wonder about is that you know if you're living in a city type environment like that and you're having to move up and down you're going to be constantly in and out of elevators and that is how it is in say a city like New York or whatever and i'm wondering how that would work in say if another pandemic was to start like covid we i know from running our buildings here in East Point like we only allowed one two people max in the elevator at a time and if you're if, if you're five minutes walk distance i'm wondering if that's five minutes including the travel distance on the lift because if you've got to take a stairs 500 meters then it's going to be an awful lot longer than five minutes but anyway i'm sure they've figured that one out and i'm sure the lifts will work as opposed to the stuff that they built in the older cities Lastly, let's talk about the cost. They are saying that this is actually going to cost in the region of a trillion dollars. Now, they the actual company itself has come out and announced that the first phase, which will be is underway at the moment, and it'll finish in 2030, will cost $265 billion. Now, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. Certainly, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund is has about 620 billion so they certainly have the funds at their uh, disposal to do this so it will be interesting to see um, whether it moves ahead and what does the ultimate you know price come in at and part four my own opinion on the pros and cons of this as a concept um, whether or not it'll actually ever work that remains to be seen I mean they're saying that it's all it's going ahead that this is you know actually under construction. I don't believe that for, um, I just, I have my doubts, let's just say. Um, Can it work financially? Can it work technically? And as I mentioned earlier, like, can it work from a cultural human standpoint? I mean, would you move into a city like that? Would you move somewhere uh, that required you to live on the 120th floor? And, you know, everything was, you you didn't have, uh, you know, a garden, you didn't have a balcony, you didn't have any of those kind of things. Maybe you have balconies, I don't know how the, the the ultimate long-term design is going to look like. But like to get into the pros to start with, like let's start with the good stuff. First of all, I think it is brilliant that there are people and organisations out there that are actually willing to fund this kind of research and design concepts and stuff like that. I think back over history, and I kind of think to myself, you know, some of the best works of art that we have today and, you know, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, all of their great works. They were all funded by a patron who who paid for it to be done. These, This was not the guys sitting at home, you know, coming up with an idea and like starting it themselves. They were funded. And this is how they, you know, lived basically and, and covered their costs. Mozart was another one he, like his music was funded by patrons and so these you know massive leaps these big huge breakthroughs in either you know innovation or art or culture or whatever it is to really innovate you often have to throw a lot of crap against the wall and see what sticks and that's how it is done if you think about you know, a totally different industry, but the car manufacturers, okay? How often do you see concept cars that really catch your eye and catch your attention? Um, I love Audis and Audi in particular are very, very good at putting out Audi concept cars and stuff. And a lot of the time the vehicles are super wacky but incredibly innovative and they got some really, really, you know, crazy technology. The reality is most of the technology that you see never finds its way into production. You'll never see it on the road. But there are a couple of the best ideas or say the most popular ideas um, that actually do make it to the road. And you'll see them in the next model or the best seller or whatever it is. And um, I like to see that. I have to say things like, you know, things that we are used to today, the LED lights on cars, like that was a concept, say, I don't know, at this stage, probably 10 years ago. Now every car has got led lights but back then it was like whoa that's a great idea led lights you know anyway when it comes to wacky architectural concepts and schemes and stuff like that um they almost always get watered down as well and they get watered down by commercial reality if you just look at the the world trade center after the world trade center in new york was destroyed uh, in, in in 2001 the 9 11 attacks the competition that was held to recreate the new World Trade Center that turned into this really like like a 20-year like a process. and the winning scheme was done by this architect, this German architect. Um, his name for you know I can't remember his name, but I think it was Leipzig or something like that. but he came up with this amazing concept. and if you look at the design today compared to what won the competition when he won it it uh, it doesn't look anything like it. The only thing that was retained, I think, was the two voids, the footprints of the original buildings that they turned into these beautiful waterfalls and they're kind of like a memorial. The towers that he had proposed, like none of them made any sense commercially. And so the the owner of the land, a guy called Silverstone, um, William Silverstone, or I think his name is, and he... Uh, is this billionaire real estate guy. And he just vetoed the whole thing. He said, these buildings have got to make me money. And so everything that was built was built according to the commercial reality. And there was a lot, a lot of arguments. And the, the winning architect ended up really unhappy with the uh, with the final result. Now in the Middle East, this is not always the case. I know from living there myself, um, especially living in Dubai and, and in Qatar, it was the same. I saw a lot of crazy stuff being proposed and being built. When I was living in Dubai, I was looking at office buildings that were just these ridiculous shapes, like the shape of a perfume bottle, things like that. They made no sense at all, but somebody had the money to build it, so it got built, and then it sat empty. Another thing I saw, especially in, in Dubai, there was a, there's a thing in, in sorry, in, in Qatar, in Doha, there's a building called the Tornado Tower and I'll put it up on the screen if you're watching the YouTube here. That is like, it looks like a tornado basically. The weirdest design, and I actually worked on one of the floors in there. There was a Regis office that I had a space in. And um, a lot of those places, when they're built, they're just not viable. I mean, a circular floor plate does not work in an office building, because where do you put your furniture? Furniture comes in rectangles. When you try and put a rectangular desk into a curved floor, it just doesn't make sense, and um, and so it was the very same in those kind of curved buildings. Now, the problem is, these headline-grabbing projects, they often, they they often have these wacky designs, but it's actually there's there's a there they do make sense in a in a kind of bigger in the bigger scheme of things. If you look at them individually, they make no sense at all. And so, for example, the Burj Khalifa Tower, that is 830 meters tall, right, 160 stories. It cost $1.5 billion to build. And a huge portion of the upper floors have really, really inefficient uh, floor plates. And that is because the lift core, you know, the building tapers as it goes to the top. And at the very top, it's just like really, really narrow. And uh, But they have the, the lift core and the stair core has to go all the way up to the top. And so when you get up to the top, you've got floors that are like 70 to 80% lift and stair core, and then everything else is like a tiny little bit of office around the outside. And so you can imagine those upper floors, they don't make any money at all. They make no sense. They're just there as a kind of architectural wonder. Um, how and so on their own, those upper floors did not make no sense. The building itself probably does not make sense. Like the 1.5 billion, I doubt they're making the return that they would like to on that. However, when you take that tallest building in the world, that attracts millions of tourists every year. You've also got at the foot of it, you've got the Dubai fountains, which are these incredible fountains where they dance the music. Uh, they play music and the water dances and these jets of water are going up like 10 15 stories high and they dance to to the music and it that installation cost 105 million dollars that that water feature and again makes no sense they don't charge for it but on its own it doesn't make any sense there's not a single return from that fountain but as a tourist attraction it pulls millions of people to that exact location. And in that location, there's lots of apartments, office buildings, restaurants, leisure, hotels, all of that, and there's also the Dubai Mall, the largest mall in the world. And that place, I was in there many times, I got lost several times. I think there's over a thousand stores in that. So imagine going to a place, and there's a thousand stores like you could spend an entire day there and you still won't have even seen 10% of the the building um but those three you know attractions those tourist attractions taken together they pull millions of people to that location and so they've managed to sell thousands of apartments um hundreds of thousands of square feet of office has been rented in that area There's restaurants, bars, stores, obviously the whole Dubai mall is filled with stores that are paying rent and stuff. So in that kind of greater picture, the greater scheme of things, it does actually work. And so those things have been a big attraction that have pulled, and so it works in those situations. But you've got to own the wider estate, we'll say, for that to work. And um, if you're an individual asset owner, and you build that kind of thing, that makes no sense at all. Okay, so let's get into the cons now. And I gotta be honest, I think there's quite a few cons here. First of all, when I showed this scheme to my wife, I had to laugh at her response. She's not into architecture or um, construction or any of that kind of stuff. And the first thing that she said was, my God, who would want to live like an ant in an ant hive or an ant colony? And so I thought it was brilliant because That's effectively what you're talking about, like high density, living on top of and around one another. Um, The first thing I want to ask is, like, who would live in this? Okay, Um, you know, if you're talking about this, the problem when you're building something like this is the first people who move in are like the they are the pioneers and they're the person, the people that are going to arrive there before it's fully furnished for it's fully built. And uh, like when the Dubai Mall first opened, they didn't have enough shopkeepers. They didn't have enough shops that were willing to open in there. And so what happened was the owners of the actual mall opened a lot of stores to basically get the kick the thing off. And that is how it I expect this would work as well. I can't imagine businesses going in saying, okay, I'm gonna rent this place. Because they don't necessarily know how many residents there's going to be there. They don't know if the thing is going to work. Um, And the other thing is, um, you know, the lifts everywhere, elevators everywhere, all of that kind of stuff. You just have to wonder, will people be attracted to this as a proposed living place? I mean, would you live there for the rest of your life? Maybe, definitely not. Would you live there while you're working on a project and it's a temporary thing? Maybe, but they're talking about a 9 million population. And so they're talking about a living city. And so that's a question. If you look at some of the art, you know, the the images that they've created, it actually looks a little bit like these huge space stations that they talk about or that you see in in kind of uh, science fiction movies and um, where people are able to kind of walk around and things like that um, at different levels. And it looks a little bit like that. I just wonder whether it's it's the kind of place that you're going to want to live yourself. As a concept, it makes you know it, it might make sense, but I'm just not sure. Um, in practical terms, until it's actually a good few sections are built and it's starting to kind of work as a larger place with you know tens of thousands of people, maybe. But who knows? It actually reminds me a lot of the old comic book 2000 AD when I was a kid. I used to read 2000AD and my favourite character was Judge Dredd. And Judge Dredd lived in this future city called Mega City One. And there were these huge 200-storey-high mega-blocks, they were called. And these were basically micro-cities with 75,000 residents living in them. And the idea was that you were born, lived and died in this block, never having to go out of it because everything was in this same location within you know walking distance sounds a little bit familiar doesn't it um certainly if you want to go and check that out there's a movie 2012 a movie called dread came out and it's uh it's about that character and they they, there is one of those mega blocks there and they do not paint paint a pretty picture the next thing i'm going to ask is in terms of cons like who is going to build this thing and um I've got to kind of, you know, when people are talking about zero carbon emissions, that does not exist when you start construction of anything at all, especially in the Middle East. OK, it's all fine for them to say that there'll be no cars and so there'll be no carbon emissions. But the fact that you're building something 500 meters high with concrete and steel and glass and all that, that is in itself thousands and thousands of tons of carbon created to, to basically manufacture that to ship the steel to site burns carbon carbon emissions are, are let off by the ships to lift them into place with cranes and to do all of this and you know concrete is a hugely carbon ef- um, emission it, like the, the manufacturing of concrete is a massive contributor of um, of carbon emissions so to call it a zero carbon emissions city i think is a bit of a misnomer right that is not what it's going to be it's going to be massive amount of carbon created and then they call them embodied carbon it's going to sit there for the entire duration of its life Uh, the next thing is is you know who's going to actually build this thing it's all fine to say that these are going to be the most beautiful places to live and and all of this kind of thing, but the reality is as I know from living in the Middle East when i did live there is that these wonderful you know buildings and cities and facilities that they they you know, that they build they are constructed by thousands of sort of poor, usually Indian and Pakistani laborers. And those guys work in very, very harsh conditions. And I can remember seeing the guys, I was working on a building in Dubai and I can remember the guys, like it was sweltering outside, 40 degrees. And these guys, they would have a, um, they wouldn't have an air conditioned place to go. They would just sleep outside during the hottest part of the day. And what they did is they, they put this kind of netting to create kind of a shaded area. But it was just netting. I mean, they didn't have any air conditioning. They had nothing. And so very, very harsh conditions to work. And these labor camps then, after they finished, they you know got onto a bus and they were transported to a labor camp. And when the, the, the gate opens, the bus drives in, everyone gets out and they don't leave that labor camp till they're collected the next day. And they all stay in these, in this compound, basically. And they, they're living in these prefabricated dorms a lot of the time. And they're very cramped. I can remember seeing videos about this. And it was like 10 people to a room. And the guys are even cooking in that room. Like, there's not a kitchen. The guys are cooking on a stove, like, between the beds and stuff. Uh, a lot of the time, their passports are confiscated. And so they can't leave. They can't, you know... They actually have to pay for their own board staying in these cramped conditions. So I don't think, uh, unless these guys are proposing to actually do it in a more humane way, I can imagine the millions of people that would be involved in constructing this. And you have to wonder, finally, who is going to fund it, all right? But now, Mohammed bin Salim, he is a young man. He's only in his 30s. And he's in control, effectively, of the Saudi sovereign wealth fund with its 620 billion. So he certainly has the wealth and the power to build this thing. Um, They've actually created a company to raise more funding for it and they're gonna make it like an investment that people can invest in. I don't think I'd be investing in it myself. Um, It'll be interesting to see. The question I have is, you know, this thing, if it does end up costing a trillion dollars, who's gonna fund that shortfall? The second thing is, will this ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, will he have the, I suppose, the staying power? The, you know, will he remain committed for the time it'll take to build this? They're talking about 2030. We all know that is so unrealistic. 170 kilometer-long construction is going to take decades. And so you're talking about a guy potentially working on a project from his 30s into his 60s, maybe even beyond his life. And you have to wonder whether a guy like him will be will remain committed and remain interested. And the reason I say this is because I see there's a tower in Jeddah that started construction in 2013. It's called the Jeddah Tower. And you guys, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see. But this this was going to be the tallest tower in the world. They wanted to take the first place from Dubai and this is going to be the first one kilometer tall tower and um, it was going to be it was going to be something like 200 stories I can't remember exactly but I think 200 stories is accurate and they started construction in 2013 and today you go and visit that site it is on the 60th floor so it's only one third of the way and that's it the whole project is on hold now it it was being it was the idea was initially by um, another member of the royal family, who ended up getting caught up in this purge, and so maybe his money is he's lost his money or whatever. But this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about: is these projects, these massive mega projects, they start and then they kind of falter. And the question is, will the concept see you know the light of day? I personally doubt it. It's a this is so ambitious as a project. This is like the pyramids of Egypt. And you know they say that these pyramids would have taken decades to complete. And the people that they were built for would have died decades before they actually ever saw it. And so when you're talking about housing 9 million residents, the actual NEOM announcement says that that will be by 2030. So what, eight years from now, nine million people will be living in this? I just don't see it. And uh, so I don't think it's realistic. But it'll be interesting to see. Certainly from my time living in the Middle East, um, in Dubai and Doha, I saw how a lot of these projects get started. And now I don't want to be, I don't like to be cynical, but I'll just explain what I saw a lot of the time. What you all had a, frequently was an international contest is held and these all these teams from around the world, architects and various people, they come together to put in a bid and the winning team is often the bit, the one that comes in with the slickest presentation, like a really, you know, slick videos, renderings, um, computer graded design, all this kind of stuff, and uh, it catches the ruler's eye a lot of the time. And what what they catch, you know, the, the ideas, the concepts. They're not really interested in that. What they want is the headline, the big superlatives. So the biggest building, the largest mall, the tallest skyscraper, the world's first uh, sustainable city, all of this, that's what they're looking for. They're looking to be able to claim first in the world so they can go down in history as this. And that's what they're kind of after a lot of the time. And the reality is they don't make any commercial sense at all and they might have a an expat working as the CEO and his job is to kind of like run the company and he might be saying, no chance we're doing this project makes no sense, but he will get overruled by the royal family member and the royal family member ends up sort of saying, no, 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 I like this, let's go ahead with it And and that happens over and over again, I've seen it a lot. Will it be different in this case? We shall have to see. I guess time will tell. Anyway, guys, if you found any of this interesting, if you'd like to kind of dive a little bit deeper, I'm going to put a couple of links in the show notes. Let me know what you think. Um, You know, leave a comment below if you're watching on the YouTube. And if you are not, if you're just listening on the podcast, I'd love to hear, send me a message through social media, whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. You know my, my handle, I always read it out at the end of the video. And if you're feeling particularly um, adventurous, I'm gonna tell you that you can hop on a plane and fly to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. And tomorrow, the 1st of August tomorrow, tomorrow is the exhibition kicking off for this particular project, The line. And so the design and everything like that, there's a big exhibition tomorrow. It's gonna to be held from the 1st to the 14th of August at the Jeddah Superdome. And uh, that's it. Guys, I hope you found this interesting. I'll be back here same time next week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you found this episode useful, um, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or share it with a friend. If you have any questions or other topics that you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group behind the facade community alternatively as i mentioned you can find me on social media my handle is gavin j gallagher you can also stay up to date with projects and various things that i'm working on by joining my tribe now that is you'll find it uh, it's my email list and you'll find it over it at gavinjgallagher.com that's my website and uh, guys look that's it see you back here next week